Good morning. It's a joy to be with you this morning. And as 2023 comes to a close, I can think of no place that I'd rather be than worshiping with God's people. And what a blessing it is to finish up this year with all of you while diving into God's word together. As we prepare to read our text this morning and get into our message, let's first go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, our great and glorious God, Lord, we thank you for the blessings of this past year. Lord, the blessings that reminded us of your goodness and your faithfulness to your people. We praise you, Lord, for the trials that brought us closer to you as we were driven to our knees in prayer. Lord, we desire to finish this year well. Lord, help us in the coming year to serve you, to follow you more closely, to love you more deeply, Lord, to bring glory and honor to your name. I pray that you would guide us now as we look to your word for instruction, for encouragement, and for correction where it may be needed. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Well, if you are able, I would invite you to stand as we read the Holy Scriptures together. Our text this morning is going to be from Paul's letter to the Galatians. We're going to be reading in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And Paul writes, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his internal, inerrant, and holy word. And may the Holy Spirit write its truth on our hearts. You may be seated. I'm thankful, as always, for any opportunity that I have to stand before you. thankful for Pastor Greg and being able to serve with him and him allowing me this opportunity to preach to you this morning. I would appreciate your prayers as I preach to you this morning because I just pray my voice holds out throughout the rest of our time this morning. So just getting over some sickness this weekend and uh, yeah, we're just 
I got some water here, and we're gonna we're gonna pray that the Lord will guide us through. So, well, acceptance, as you see in our the title of today's message, which you can see in your bulletin there. You can also follow along when your handout, and if you're online or or if you're using the app, you can use the app out to, to keep notes. But you see that the title of today's message is faith and acceptance. Acceptance is something that all of us look for throughout most of our lives. You know, at times we may try to tell ourselves that we don't care if people accept us, but when it comes down to it, all of us look for acceptance in some form or fashion. When we were kids, we looked for our parents' approval. We wanted to show them something that we accomplished and for them to be proud of us, we'd bring them those pictures that we drew that would be just like an orange or brown blob on a paper. And we wanted them to be so excited that it was like something that should be in the Louvre. And, we, and then they put it on the fridge. And we just want them to accept what we've done. When we got to school, we wanted the other kids to accept us into their social circle or accept us as a part of a club or a sports team. After high school, you might have hoped that the college you wanted to attend sends you that acceptance letter. And then when you're in college, you repeat that cycle of wanting to be accepted into a group social circle. After college, you're hoping that the job that happens to be in your major field of study accepts you as their newest employee. When you buy that first car, your first home, you go to the bank and you hope that they accept your loan application based on your income and occupation. But what do all these scenarios of acceptance have in common? They're all based on our own merit. They're based on things that we did, that we accomplished. You're accepted on a sports team because of your skill. When you applied for college, you sent them your transcript and your list of achievements in high school. When you applied for a job, you listed your credentials, your degrees, your past experience. When you apply for a loan, you show the bank what you do for a living that proves you can afford to pay them back. Even when we try to attract a mate, we hope that they'll accept us and we put forth all of our best qualities, including some of those aforementioned accomplishments. And if we're ever not accepted for any of these things, we want to know why. We want to know where we fall short so that we can improve for the next attempt. Well, one of the larger problems that plagues people today, even within the church, is that this mentality of gaining acceptance through our own merits carries over into our need for salvation. Most people will admit wanting to, to wanting to go to heaven after this life is over. And most religions have a teaching about what awaits us after death. One of the major differences between Christianity and other religions is that the Christian teaching on gaining acceptance into heaven is not based on anything that we can accomplish. We cannot earn our way into heaven. A lot of people have a problem with this teaching, though, because there are people who don't like the idea of not being in control of their earthly life, much less their eternal life. And despite this being a core teaching of Christian doctrine, there are still those who claim Christ who think that their salvation is contingent upon themselves. Now, they may not outright claim that they can earn their salvation, but their actions may show that they're holding to some additional requirement that they feel is necessary for salvation. Now, if the history of mankind has taught us anything, it's that man is capable of some foolish things. You just, just Google the words Florida man, 
and you'll see all kinds of foolishness that man is capable of. But one of the most foolish things, there is no greater foolishness than to attempt to gain eternal life through your own efforts. And so what I hope for us to learn from this passage is that there is no value in our efforts or good deeds when it comes to our salvation. Even the good works that we do after we become Christians are a result of our faith and are in no way ensuring that we keep our salvation, but are simply evidences of our salvation. In fact, the last time that I was able to be in the pulpit, the last couple of times I was here, I was able to bring messages from the book of James. And we talked about the relationship between our faith and our works. And we learned that our faith in Christ must be marked by actions that prove that we have been saved. Well, here in Paul's letter to the Galatians, we're going to be looking at the other side of that faith coin. And we're going to be looking at the role that our faith and our works play in being accepted before God. If you've done any study of the book of Galatians, you know that this was the, the major problem that Paul was dealing with and why he was, what he was addressing in this book. The first couple of chapters of Galatians is more of a historical, biographical backdrop uh, to let us know why he's writing. Paul had visited the Galatians, he had written to the Galatians, he had, he had shared the gospel, he had preached to the Galatians. But since his last time with them, the Galatians had been visited by the Judaizers. And Paul mentions them here in, in, the, or in the opening chapters of, the, of, the, of this letter. The Judaizers were a group of religious zealots who had come to the people of Galatia after they had heard Paul's teachings. They were afraid that their Jewish heritage would be threatened. So they came preaching that in order to be a true believer, they must also fulfill the requirements of the Jewish law. Namely, they must be circumcised. Paul became aware of this, and he wrote this letter to warn the people of being swayed by this perversion of the gospel. So as we come to chapter 3, we get to Paul's theological treatise as he defends the true gospel. And in the first five verses of, this, of our passage this morning, we have our first major point, which talks about where, where we're going to see Paul make an appeal to faith. So how is a person accepted by God? Well, what Paul had taught the Galatians, and we can also find this in many of his other letters, especially if you, if you study his letter to the Romans, is that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. And we find the doctrine of justification by faith alone, or sola fide, one of the five solas of the Reformation that we have taught on here in this pulpit many times, including Reformation Sunday. It's this, it is the understanding that we have nothing to bring before God that would warrant his favor and restore our broken relationship that we have with him, and that the only way we are granted forgiveness of our sins and access to God in heaven is through Jesus' blood, which was shed in our place, and which appeased the holy wrath of Almighty God. Now, this is one of the most beautiful teachings of the Christian doctrine. It's also one that has many detractors. Like I said, mainly from those who cannot fathom the idea that their eternal fate is out of their control. If justification comes by grace through faith, then all the glory goes to God. But people are sinful, and in their sin, they are selfish, and they want to keep some of the glory for themselves. Therefore, they try to justify themselves before God based on their own works. So Paul's response 
at the beginning of Galatians 3 is that, of the, is that the biblical doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is a doctrine for the whole Christian life from beginning to end. But this doctrine was being challenged and the gospel that Paul loved was being cast aside as the people of Galatia were starting to embrace the teaching of the Judaizers which was adding to the gospel, proclaiming that these Gentile Christians still needed to adhere to Jewish law in order to be saved. Which is why this chapter begins with a harsh rebuke. He begins by saying, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now if you read this letter, you'll see Paul is, he's, he's already been quite stern He's already used some pretty forceful language, but th- at this point, it hasn't been so personal. Now he's, he's getting right in their face. In fact, uh, one commentator, J.B. Phillips, he gave a nice paraphrase, which he said, this is, Paul was saying, oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, surely you can't be so idiotic. Now, I believe there's a lot to be learned in this outcry about how we respond to false teaching. Now, I'm not saying we should start going around calling everybody idiots. There's a time and a place for tact when we share the gospel, but I think we should be so devoted to the gospel that when someone tries to tear it down, it should anger us, and we shouldn't tolerate it. In fact, too many churches are killing their ministry for the sake of tolerance. When we start preaching tolerance of differing beliefs, we find ourselves in the same situation as the Galatians who were in danger of nullifying the grace of God. These Judaizers had come from Jerusalem to persuade them that works of the law were necessary for their justification. So if that were the case, what was the point of the cross? Why would someone else have to die for my sins if I could take care of them myself? The implication of justification by works is what Paul says, and if you go back to chapter 2, verse 21, that if we're justifying by our own works, then Christ died needlessly. With this in mind, Paul's outburst seems completely understandable. In his commentary on Galatians, John Calvin wrote, For when we hear that the Son of God, with all of his blessings, is rejected, and that his death is esteemed as nothing, what godly mind will not break out in indignation? As far as Paul was able to tell, the Galatians were guilty of sheer spiritual stupidity. And Paul thought they were being so foolish that he uses exaggeratory language by suspecting that they were under some kind of witchcraft. He says, who has bewitched you? Now that Greek word that is used, that is abaskinen, it means to give someone the evil eye, to cast a spell over, or to fascinate in the original sense of holding someone spellbound by an irresistible power. Now Paul knew that the Galatians, they weren't really enchanted But he knew that they were under the influence of false teachers who wanted to add the law of Moses to faith in Christ Jesus to produce this Jesus plus gospel. So this this first verse here in chapter 3 points to two primary sources of doctrinal error. And that is human ignorance and demonic malevolence. First he called the Galatians foolish. They should have known better. They, 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 they've been told the gospel, so it, they should not have fallen into this trap. 
But we should also remember that one of the devil's favorite strategies is to distort the truth so that people can no longer tell the difference between the one true gospel and all the false alternatives. We see both of these actions on display in the Garden of Eden when the serpent came to tempt Adam and Eve. The serpent first attacked God's love for man by suggesting that God had forbidden them to eat any of the fruit of the garden. Well, Eve rejected that statement and said that God had only forbidden them to eat of one tree. But her statement was a little off. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 2 through 3, she says, From the fruit of the tree of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Now, did God say they couldn't touch the fruit? No, he didn't say that. So we see Eve's ignorance in this as she, she misunderstood But then the serpent jumps at the opportunity and completely rejects what God had said, telling her that they would not die. They would have their eyes opened. They would be like God. So now we see demonic malevolence at work. He distorted the truth and played to one of man's greatest sins, pride. Satan knows where to attack us. That's why Peter tells us in his first epistle, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. This sounds exactly what's going on with the churches in Galatia. God spoke to the Galatians through Paul, showing them how they could be followers of Christ. Then the devil shows up under the guise of these Judaizers, twisting the truth, telling them that there is more to the story than what Paul shared. He again plays to man's pride and vanity by telling the Galatians that they need to add the keeping of the Mosaic law to faith in Christ. Satan is offering them the opportunity to claim that they did something to earn their salvation. So Paul knew there was a serious situation brewing here and he knew he had to respond to what was going on. That's why he started with a rebuke. But he didn't stop there. He follows that up with a clear and vivid reminder of the true gospel that they had been taught. In order to break the spell, so to speak, that they were under, the Galatians needed to look to the cross. Now, before looking at Paul's reminder, let's let's take note of how Paul handled the situation. Yes, we should be outraged like Paul at those who distort the gospel and at fellow Christians who start listening to those who distort the gospel. But our outrage should be followed by a desire to point those people back to Jesus. We don't just call people fools and then leave them in their foolishness. We should direct them back to the cross. Paul reminded the Galatians that it was before your eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now it's possibly no coincidence that Paul specifically mentions the eyes here. He may be playing off his rhetorical question there at the beginning when he said, who has bewitched you? As I said, that word means uh, to be bewitched, means to cast, have an evil eye cast on you. And so now he's pointing them saying, now you need to fix your eyes back on the cross of Christ. Now the Galatians had seen the cross before. Now not, not literally, not literally seeing Christ crucified. Many of them probably did not physically see the act of Christ crucified, but they were given a vivid display of it when Paul came and preached the cross to them. 
In his previous visit, he came preaching the gospel. And whether he was standing out in the streets or sitting down in people's homes, he always preached the same thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Calvin said, let those who want to discharge the ministry of the gospel aright learn not only to speak and declaim, but also to penetrate into consciences so that men may see Christ crucified and that his blood may flow. When the church has such painters as these, she no longer needs wood and stone. That is dead images. She no longer requires any pictures. That is the power of preaching. To preach is to portray the cross. This is what Paul and the other apostles did when they preached the gospel. They would begin with the person of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. They would portray both of his natures, human as well as divine, The apostles first identified Jesus as the God-man. Because he was man, he was able to enter into our situation and suffer for our sins. Because he was God, he was able to live in perfect obedience and offer a sacrifice of infinite value. The apostles preached that this Christ had been crucified. Paul always preached what he called the word of the cross. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. And he said, we preach Christ crucified, 1 Corinthians 1, 23. Or again, he resolved to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul's gospel was the gospel of the crucified Christ. It's centered on the death of God's own son on the cross and on the implications of that death for the salvation of the world. But there is more than Christ crucified because God proved that he accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made by raising him from the dead. Therefore, to preach Christ having been crucified is not simply to preach him crucified. It is also to preach him risen. Jesus is no longer on the cross. At this very moment, he is risen. He is living a living Savior who is able to grant forgiveness to everyone who believes in him. And this forgiveness goes all the way back to the cross, a past event with present consequences. And Paul was upset that the Galatians were forgetting all of this. He had laid out for them, he had preached to them, Jesus crucified. Then these other teachers come along saying, that is not enough. Unwilling to accept salvation in Christ alone, they wanted to add their own finishing touches to the work of Christ. And to do so is to spit on the cross and tell Jesus, thank you for all you did, but I'll take it from here. What the Galatians needed was a reminder that on the cross, Jesus did everything necessary for their salvation. And so Paul starts firing off some rhetorical questions, reminding these people of how they were saved in the first place. He says, did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer in vain? Does God work miracles among you by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Paul believed that deep down these Galatians knew they were justified by faith alone because this is how they came to Christ in the first place. And so Paul is trying to remind them of this to try to keep them from going back to the law. And so Paul is reminding them that the Christian life, a life in service to Christ, is found by the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not talking about a pew-jumping, gibberish, tongue-speaking, fits-of-laughter kind of receiving of the Holy Spirit that some churches like to put on display. 
I'm referring to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for every believer that happens at conversion. We are able to live for Christ. We are able to attempt to live holy lives because the Holy Spirit guides us. And our keeping of the law is simply evidence that we have been regenerated. The Holy Spirit doesn't come to us because we do enough, because we live the right way or fulfill the right requirements. We live the way God wants us to because we receive the Holy Spirit by faith. As I mentioned several months ago, I was able to preach a couple of sermons from James' epistle, and we encountered James 2.24, which says, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, as I said at that time, there are people who believe that there was a conflict between James and then what Paul is saying here. That, and that maybe Paul wrote Romans in response to what James wrote here, or, or what James wrote in his letter, or vice versa. Well, R.C. Sproul, he had something to say about this matter. And he said, I'm convinced that we really don't have a conflict here. What James is saying is this. If a person says he has faith, but he gives no outward evidence of that faith through righteous works, his faith will not justify him. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox would absolutely agree with James. We are not saved by a profession of faith or by a claim to faith. That faith has to be genuine before the merits of Christ will be imputed to anybody. You can't just say you have faith. True faith will be absolutely true faith will absolutely and necessarily yield the fruits of obedience and the works of righteousness. Luther was saying that those works don't add to that person's justification at the judgment seat of God, but they do justify his claim to faith before the eyes of man. James is saying not that a man is justified before God by his works, but that his claim to faith is shown to be genuine as he demonstrates the evidence of that claim of faith through his works. So now having made the appeal to faith that these, that these Galatians had received, Paul proceeds then to give them an example of faith as he points to Father Abraham. Abraham was an important figure to the Judaizers, these goody two-shoes of the apostolic church who believed in justification of Justification by faith plus works. In fact, if they had taught any Bible songs to their children, it probably went like this. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and you are not, unless you receive circumcision. This was their mark of belonging to God. Their war cry was, we belong to Abraham. So if the Gentiles wanted to belong to God, they had to become children of Abraham. And this is why we need a correct interpretation of the Bible. Paul was in a theological fight against people that knew a great deal about Scripture. Their understanding of it, it was, it was flawed. This is why we must be so careful with how we handle teaching God's Word and why those who have been called to preach and teach should recognize the great responsibility that they have been given. Paul knew that there were lives at stake, and he had a responsibility to teach the truth. How many times have we seen people who know a lot about the Bible, a lot about religion, a lot about God, yet they have made some critical mistakes in interpretation? They believe that they're Christians or they won't go to hell, but, but based on what they claim or what they say they believe, we, we see that that doesn't appear to be the case. It should break our hearts and it should put a fire under us to make sure they know the truth 
about salvation. Well, Paul knew the Judaizers loved to bring up Abraham. Their go-to scripture was Genesis 17, where God's covenant with Abraham was signified by his circumcision. Well, Paul went back even further to Galatians 15 and God's promise of a child. Abraham is the perfect example of what faith, especially blind faith, looks like. God made Abraham quite a few promises in his time. In Genesis chapter 12, God told Abraham to leave his homeland and his family to go to a place that God will show him later. And Abraham believed God's promises. No sooner had he received that instruction than he went as the Lord told him. And in the book of Hebrews that we saw this morning during our invocation, we get this brief biographical summary of this period in Abraham's life. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. And some years later, God makes another promise to Abraham. He promises him a son. Now these promises were getting harder and harder to believe. After all, God had promised Abraham land, yet he still didn't own any property. God had promised him an heir, yet he still didn't have any children. And at this point, Abraham is pushing 100 years old. God took Abraham outside. He showed him the sky. And he told Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. Abraham had left home at the age of 75, and here he was 25 years later, and God still had not given him the land he had promised. So what does Abraham do when God hands out another seemingly impossible promise that you are now going to, now you're going to have your son when you're 100 years old. Abraham believes him. Most of us give up on God's promise if he hasn't answered us by the end of the week. Do we have the same faith as Abraham? A faith that will keep us going for 25 years without seeing a promise fulfilled. The Judaizers were totally missing the boat when they looked back at Abraham. They saw a man that was made righteous by keeping the works of the law. But the striking thing about Abraham was that he, he was made righteous before he was circumcised. The Judaizers always brought up Genesis 17 when God made his covenant with Abraham and told him that he and his descendants should be circumcised as a sign of that covenant. But Paul points out that in Genesis 15, before Abraham had even heard about circumcision, God made him righteous because of his belief or his faith. And so Paul is using the backbone of their argument against them as he shows the Judaizers that Abraham was saved because of his faith, not because of his works. So if we have Abraham as our example, what is to be the object of our faith? How does our faith save us? Faith saves us when we place our trust, just as Abraham did, in the promises of God. Now, our promises are different than Abraham's. The promise that God gives us is that we can have salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross and that his sacrifice atoned for our sin. 
And not unlike Abraham, we have been given a seemingly impossible task in accepting these promises. We're asked to take God at his word that over 2,000 years ago, his son came to earth, died in our place, and then rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven. We are then asked to believe that, if, that it was that act that can grant us salvation from hell and acceptance by God. And if that weren't enough, we are asked to have faith that is only through our belief that we have salvation and there is nothing else we can do to earn it. As I said many times before, this is where a lot of people have a problem with Christianity. They don't feel like someone else, they don't like, or they don't like the feeling that someone else is in control of their lives and their eternal destiny. And this was the message that Paul had preached to the Galatians. A message that he is having to remind them because of the false teachings of the Judaizers. Paul's gospel, the one true gospel, was one free of works and was based solely on faith alone. And, it was, and that faith alone was in Christ alone. We are to trust in the promises that Christ fulfilled for our salvation. It's the only thing that will save us. Going to church doesn't save us. Having Christian parents doesn't save us. Praying and reading our Bibles doesn't save us. Living good lives doesn't save us. Just believing in anything does not save us. The only thing that saves us is having God open our eyes to the truth of the gospel and placing our faith in those promises that God has made. So it should break our heart that there are so many people that think that they are saved or think that they are Christians, but in reality, they are not. Not only are there people of other religions that are blindly following a false gospel and thinking that these false gods will grant them eternal life, but there are many people in evangelical Christian churches who either through their own misunderstanding or through errant teaching of the word think that they are saved because of something that they did or something that they said. But they have not truly trusted in Christ for salvation. There are many people in churches across the world who have been taught that all they have to do to be saved is to say a prayer. They've been taught the ABCs of becoming a Christian. They have been coached to recite the sinner's prayer. But those words don't save people. There is nothing magic in those words. In fact, those words are not found anywhere in the scriptures. Just repeating what someone else says does not make you saved. It is through a heart change that God does in us. And in our heart, through that heart change, we say, I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Salvation comes from a regenerated heart that is a result of the faith that we have in Christ. So if we have put our faith in the promises of God as Abraham did, what then is the result of that faith? Well, Paul tells us here in verse 7 that the result of our faith is that we are sons of Abraham. It was this title that the Judaizers loved to whip out to prove that salvation was not by faith alone, but also accompanied by works. So if anybody wanted to be a son of Abraham, they had to be Jewish. Therefore, they had to be circumcised. So a great deal in this passage depends on what it means to be a son of Abraham. What does that mean? Well, Paul tells us it means that we share in the blessings that Abraham received. What was the blessing that Abraham received? Well, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, telling us that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was counted to him or credited to him. 
doesn't mean that Abraham was actually righteous, only that he was declared righteous. He was considered to have a right standing before God. The proper theological term would be that God imputed righteousness to Abraham. And God is the one who has the legal right to state whether a man is righteous or unrighteous. And in this case, he considered Abraham righteous through his faith. In his commentary on the book of Galatians, um, author and pastor Philip Ryken, he gives a good example of what it means to be declared righteous. He tells the story of the astronomer William Herschel, who lived in the 17 and 1800s. And as a young boy growing up in Hanover, Germany, Herschel loved listening to military music and he eventually joined a military band. But when the nation went to war, he found himself marching into battle, totally unprepared for the horrors of war. And during a period of intense fighting, he deserted his unit and fled from the field of battle. The penalty for desertion was death. So Herschel could not remain any longer in Germany. He fled to England to pursue further studies in music and science. And eventually he became a famous man, renowned throughout Europe for his musical abilities as well as his scientific discoveries. William Herschel had left his past behind him and for many years gave little thought to the death sentence that remained over him. But then another German arrived in Britain. George, head of the House of Hanover, crowned King of England. King George knew the secret of Herschel's past and summoned him to appear before the royal court. With great trepidation, the scientist arrived at the palace where he was told to wait in a chamber outside the throne room. And then one of the king's servants finally came to him and brought Herschel a document. Anxiously, he opened it and it read the following words, I, George, pardon you for your past offenses against our native land. Herschel had received a royal pardon. The fact of his desertion was not overlooked Yet he was acquitted, and therefore he was justified in the eyes of the law. In a similar way, Abraham received a royal pardon from the king of all kings. He was declared righteous, unrighteous though he was. His faith was counted for righteousness by God. Sinful though we are, we can be counted as righteous if we have put our faith in Christ. The blessing that we receive of being a son of Abraham is the gospel blessing announced to Abraham to be justified or accepted as righteous in God's sight. Author Timothy George asks, what was it that was the scripture what was it that the scriptures foresaw and preached beforehand to Abraham? Simply this, the good news of salvation was to be extended to all peoples including the Gentiles who would be declared righteous by God just like Abraham on the basis of faith. And it's such an amazing and glorious thing that we can be justified. Abraham received many blessings from God in his time. He obtained an inheritance in the promised land. He was given a child, and through the child he became the father of many nations. But the greatest blessing he ever received was to be justified in the eyes of God. And in the final section of our passage this morning, we're going to see why it was so important for Abraham to be justified as we have our final point the need for faith. As we finish this passage, I know the tendency can be to think, haven't we heard this before? Don't we know this stuff already? Why do we have to hear it again? Who exactly is this message for? 
if we already know this to be true, why is he preaching this this morning? And sometimes, honestly, I think the same things. When I come across a passage like this and prepare to preach it, I'm thinking there are people that have heard this before. Why do I need to preach it again? Well, first of all, I'm preaching this passage because it's in the Bible. And it's in there more than once. This doctrine shows up multiple times. If God had only intended us for it to hear about it once, then maybe he would have inspired Paul to write about it only once. But then, of course, then you're leading with the assumption that once we've heard a sermon or we've read a particular passage, we don't need to hear it again. So secondly, just because we've heard it before doesn't mean that we should not be reminded of this great doctrinal truth and cherish it any time it is preached. And third, it is likely that there is some here this morning who haven't heard this before. So let us allow God's word to do its work in all of our hearts. As we've noted, the doctrine of justification by faith alone was very important to Paul. He addressed it in so many of his letters. And it's safe to say that Paul is concerned with making sure that people are aware that salvation is not of ourselves, but of the Lord. But along those same lines, I think that Paul, it was safe to say that he was concerned that people would misinterpret the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because that happens today. There have been people who believe that because we are justified by faith, the law then becomes irrelevant. This antinomian, anti-law, this belief is often spread by the proclamation, I'm under grace, not under the law, which is a misinterpreting of Paul's teachings. Well, I believe we can arrive to a correct interpretation of the law and its purpose, and we can better understand this doctrine of justification by faith alone. So let us first look at Paul shows us the problem with the law. He does that by quoting from the Old Testament law, from Deuteronomy 27, 26. Paul is using a Jewish law to refute Jewish teaching. Here is apologetics at its finest. We should know what other people believe in order to defend what we believe. Of course, Paul had an advantage being a former Pharisee and student of the law, but that doesn't mean that we can't be well-studied on what other religions believe so that we can refute their claims when, with what we know to be truth. A lot of people, they try to say, well, I, I don't need to know what Muslims believe. I only need to know what the Bible says. Or I'll just refute those Jehovah's Witnesses with what I know about the Bible, and they'll see that I'm right. Well, knowing what a person believes and how the Bible can show contradictions in what they believe can help a person see where their belief is faulty. And so Paul is using this verse from Deuteronomy to show that, his te that this teaching about justification by faith, that what Paul is teaching, is the correct understanding. And what Paul is quoting is one of the curses that is found in the book of Deuteronomy. Now, these curses would have been used as an act of worship. Now, Philip Ryken, a uh, commentator, he, point, he paints an interesting picture in, in his commentary talking about how the people of Israel would use these curses. He said, imagine an, an entire nation gathered on two sides, on the sides of, or on the sides of two mountains to worship. Half the people stand on the mountain, on one mountain side, and half on the other. And they worship responsively, alternating their praise. First one group cries out to the Lord, then the other. And this was the scene when the people crossed the Jordan River and entered into the promised land. 
According to the command of Moses, six tribes stood on Mount Gerizim, six on Mount Ebal. And rather than singing in harmony, they recited a litany of blessings and curses. The tribes on Mount Gerizim, they would cry out these blessings on the people of God. And then the tribes on Mount Ebal would would cry out these curses that would be on those who would do things that that God hates. The, 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 the breaking of God's law. They would yell out, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And the Levites recited a dozen curses in all, and after each one, the people would shout, Amen. And Paul knew these curses well. He he had read them in his studies of the law, but he also heard them recited on five memorable occasions. Five times Paul was punished by the Jews for preaching the gospel. And each time he received the standard punishment for which he tells us in 2 Corinthians 11.24, which was 40 lashes minus one. The synagogue manuals of that time required someone to read out the curses of the law while the prisoner was being whipped. As Paul received that final stripe on his back, he may have very well heard the words he would later quote here to the Galatians, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is using this curse here as a rebuttal to those who are attacking his preaching that faith in Christ is what brings salvation. The Judaizers are saying, no, that's not enough. You must be circumcised. You must follow the law if you want to be a follower of Christ. Well, Paul takes on, he takes one of their teachings and he turns it against them and he reminds them, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. The law doesn't save people. It condemns them. Because God's standard is perfection. He requires nothing less than total obedience to the law. God's perfect law is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And not only must we keep God's law, we must continue to keep it. God requires consistent, constant obedience to his revealed will. And so everyone must continue to do everything written in God's law down to the last detail. The verse that Paul quotes wraps up an extensive list of the demands that God makes in his law and his curse on anyone who violates any one of these demands. So when Paul said, all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, he is defending the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Because no one can be accepted by God through the law unless they keep it to perfection. Those who are unable to do so are under God's righteous curse. Question 86 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, What does every sin deserve? The answer given, Every sin deserves God's wrath and curse, both in this life and that which is to come. And we know that from Paul's letter to the Romans. That is what the law shows us. If we don't follow the law perfectly, we are sinners under God's wrath and under his curse. Has anyone, with the exception of Christ when he was on this earth, ever followed God's law perfectly? Well, the answer, of course, is no. 
Scripture is full of passages that teach of the depravity of man. 1 Kings 8.46 says, There is no man who does not sin. Isaiah 53, verse 6 says, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And then Romans 3, verse 10 tells us that there is none righteous, not even one. So if it's true that everyone is condemned by the curse of the law, then why would anyone try to base salvation by keeping the law? That's Paul's point. Everyone who depends on the law is under a curse because the curse, or because the law curses everyone who breaks it, which everyone does. So the problem with the law is not the law, it is our sin. We're given a moral standard to uphold, but because we fall short of that standard, we are under the curse of the law. So let's look more closely then at the principle of the law. Because if the law cannot bless us, then how can we receive God's blessing, the blessing that Abraham received that Paul referred to earlier in this chapter? That's the question that Paul has been dealing with when writing this letter. How does one extend in a right relationship with God? How can God accept me? What must I do to gain his favor? How can I be justified? Well, there are two possible answers to that question. We're either justified by the works of the law, or we're, or we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And Paul states which answer he believes in in the next verse when he says, Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous shall live by faith. Faith and works operate according to different principles. And they are entirely different ways to live by. One is by believing, the other is by doing. If we live by faith, we are putting our trust in Jesus Christ to justify us. If we live by works, we are putting our trust in ourselves, counting on our own contributions to make us fully acceptable to God. The problem with these two principles are that they are mutually exclusive. You cannot have it both ways. Trying to do both is like a man with one foot on the dock and one foot in in the boat. As the boat pulls away, you have a choice to make. Calvin pointed out that contradiction in these two ways of living when he said, the law justifies him who fulfills all its commands, whereas faith justifies those who are destitute of the merit of works and rely on Christ alone. To be justified by our own merit and by the grace of another are irreconcilable. The implication with these two life principles is that both can save us. If we can keep the law perfectly, the law can save us. But we've already seen that is not possible. Because no one keeps the law perfectly. Spurgeon, in a sermon on this same passage, he compared keeping the law to the sending of a message by telegraph. He said you could send a message a hundred miles perfectly if that line is intact. But if it is broken only an inch, one small cut across that line, the message cannot be sent. So our lifeline to God has been severed because of our sin. So then how can we be saved? Well, Paul tells us by quoting a verse from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul is telling us that our faith, it is our faith that saves us and nothing else. Martin Luther came across this verse while in a monastery in Erfurt, Germany. 
At the time, though, he was uncertain what it meant. Later, he went through a dark period of illness and depression during which he believed he was under the wrath of God. Lying on his bed, he believed that he was about to die. He repeated the words over and over again, the righteous will live by faith. Not long after he recovered, Luther went to Rome where he visited the church of St. John Lateran. And the Pope had promised indulgences for giving the sins of any pilgrim who mounted the staircase at this church, which was believed to have come from the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate. And believing that the steps were stained with the blood of Christ, pilgrims would climb this staircase on their knees, pausing frequently to pray and kiss the holy staircase. Well, here are the preserved words of Luther's son. As he repeated his prayers on the ladder and staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind, the just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. Luther no longer believed that there was anything that he could do to gain favor with God, and now and he began to live by faith in Christ. And Luther himself later said, Before those words broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. But when by the Spirit of God I understood these words, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. There are two principles we must choose to live by. Living by doing or living by believing. The problem with the principle of living by doing is in its practice. The principle of the law is that it can bring us salvation if we follow it perfectly. But in practice, we cannot. So we too fall desperately short of finding favor with God. I once read a section of a Sunday school teacher's leader book for second and third graders that taught that we can encourage unbelievers to act Christianly so that they can know what it is like to be Christians before they become one. How would we react if a drunk, knowing that this was a church, came in the doors as we were starting our service? Would we welcome him with open arms or would we raise eyebrows and think to ourselves, go home, clean up, get sober, and then you can come and enjoy our worship service? How many of you are thinking, I wouldn't react that way. I'm not like those people who would do that. And I'm not accusing or suggesting that anyone would do that. I'm simply challenging us to think of how we treat others in relation to the gospel. Do we put restrictions on what it means to be a Christian? Have you ever thought there's no point in sharing the gospel with that person? There's no way they'll come to Christ. In thinking that, we are suggesting that it is not simply enough to have faith. We must also do something to be something ourselves to be worthy of Christ. We've become like the man with one foot on the dock and one in the boat. We can't have it both ways. Either we're justified by faith alone or by our works. And if we're trying to be saved by our works or if we're trying to add works to the equation, we need to understand fully what the penalty of the law is. <coughs> the penalty of the law for those who do not follow it perfectly, is the curse and wrath of God. And this is not something to be taken lightly. This is not like some fictitious story about witches placing curses on people or some old-timey silent movie villain who shouts out curses foiled again. 
when the hero steps in and saves the day. This penalty, this curse that we are all under because we are sinners is death and separation from God. And the only way for us to be saved is to have that curse removed. And that is what Christ was doing on the cross, redeeming his people from the law's accursed penalty. And Paul said it like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Much like it is used today, the word redemption comes from the marketplace where it refers to the payment of a price. In Paul's world, it was used frequently in the slave market where it was referred to the purchase price of a slave. If a friend or a relative bought a slave from captivity and set him free, he was liberated through the payment of this ransom. When the Bible speaks of the redemption of sinners, it emphasizes the costly price of that redemption. Matthew 20, verse 28, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Peter writes, You were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In order to pay our penalty, Christ had to endure God's curse. In the Old Testament law and the execution of a criminal, it's, it, it's said in Deuteronomy 21, If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed by God, so that you do not defile your land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. The point of hanging a criminal in this way was to expose his capital, capital crime to public shame. Hoisting his body onto a tree demonstrated that he was under God's curse. The apostle almost went out of their way to call the cross a tree. How offensive this must have been to the Jews. At the heart of the Christian message was a man hanging on a tree. For a Jew to accept that message meant to accept the fact that a cursed Messiah hung on a cursed tree. It was probably difficult for Paul to come to grips with this truth. How could the only man who ever continued to do everything written in the book of the law be subject to its curse? We saw how Paul come to resolution with, came to resolution with this dilemma in the verse that we just read. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Paul understood Christ's death as a substitution. He was crucified in our place. We deserve the penalty of the law. We deserve God's wrath and God's curse. Christ did not deserve it, but God imputed our sins to his son. While on the cross, Christ felt the weight of our sin on his shoulders. He felt the wrath of his father toward that sin. And when Christ took our sins upon himself, he was accursed, not for his own sins, but for ours. The curse that we deserved was legally transferred from us to him in what Luther called this fortunate exchange. We trade our sin and the curse it deserves for Christ's righteousness. There is no such thing as performance-based Christianity. Having begun by faith, we must continue by faith. Justification is a doctrine for the whole Christian life from start to finish. 
And the good news of the gospel is that even though we are lost and needy sinners, if we know Christ, then we are and always will be justified. Justification is much more than a great doctrine to die with, although it is certainly that. Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is also a wonderful doctrine to live by. There's a painting by the Flemish painter Hendrik Lays that illustrates what happens when Christians lose sight of the crucified Christ. The painting is called Women Praying at a Crucifix Near St. James in Antwerp. And there's great detail in the portrayal of the women and in the background. But there's one thing missing from the painting, and that is the cross itself. The artist shows the women at worship, but not the Christ they came to adore. And Dutch art critic Hans Rookmaker asked the question, What do we see? People from a past period full of faith, reverent, praying, but we do not see the object of their faith, the crucified Christ. This is often the problem in the Christian life. We sometimes lose sight of the object of our faith, looking to other things that prove either to ourselves or to others that we are Christians, while trying to find acceptance through our own efforts. But when we bring back the crucified Christ into the picture, and we see him portrayed as the Savior who did not only die, but also rose again, then we regain the vision to live for him by faith. Let us live our lives always looking to the cross, knowing that it was that moment that brought us salvation, and that it alone has the power to save, and that our acceptance is found through Christ's effort. May our faith be in the accomplished work of Christ, which has the power we need to live holy lives, lives that are pleasing to God and that point others to him. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we find acceptance through the shed blood of your Son. Forgive us, Lord, when we attempt to find that acceptance through our own means. Strengthen our faith in you, God. I pray, Lord, that if there's anyone here that has not come to you in faith, Lord, that you would put it upon their heart this morning that you would drive them to the foot of the cross, that they would confess their sins before you, or that you would give them a new heart, and that they would arise with a new purpose, and that is to serve you. And I pray, Lord, for all of us, Lord, that that purpose would be evident in our lives, Lord, that we desire to live holy lives, glorifying you, knowing that it is you, that it is your son that provided the sacrifice that was needed, Lord, that took the curse from us, that we might bear the righteousness of Christ. We thank you and we give you praise. In your name we pray. Amen.